Welcome to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. This is our first episode, the first of many, we hope. In our first episode, I'm really glad to host my friend and colleague, Brian Franco. He's a young lawyer from Buenos Aires, and he's going to talk to us about his beginnings in Buenos Aires and how everything changed when he got to Geneva. I hope you enjoy the show. Take it away, Brian. Good afternoon. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Brian Franco, who kindly agreed to be the guest in the first podcast of the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I'm really happy to have him because he he's a very good professional, but more than that, uh, he was one of the first individuals that showed me how you can uh, be a full a full professional outside of your work. Uh, he is also an academic and he is a writer himself and this is just the beginning. He's also taught me a lot about human rights and uh, feminism and some of these concepts that I wish he can talk about today. Uh, not being the focus of the podcast, but uh, this is just as a way of introduction to my friend and colleague, Brian Franco. How are you today, Brian? I'm fine, thank you, and thank you for having me here. I'm really excited, a bit nervous as well. Uh, <laughs> this is also a good experience uh, for me, but thank you for having me, and I hope that uh, we can talk a bit. Yeah, uh, well, as I said, uh, you were one of the first uh, individuals that I saw that were really active on various fronts. I remember the other day when we were at the UN, I saw how people greeted you with so much uh, uh, enthusiasm, and uh, and I was uh, I should have Brian on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Brian. So, how does one get to become a, a human rights professional? Is is that a correct label? I, I can say that nowadays I am a human rights professional, yes. uh, although at the beginning I didn't imagine me maybe full-time with human rights, something that from the beginning I really like and I get more and more committed uh, to that. And now, as you said, it's part of my work, but I also work on this on my daily life outside uh, my professional life. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, you were born and raised in Buenos Aires, is that correct? Yeah, exactly. I, I, I was born in Buenos Aires, I studied in Buenos Aires, I started my professional career in Buenos Aires working there. Um, at the beginning, actually, I, I was not following uh, human rights. I remember that I started to study uh, law in the University of Buenos Aires just because it was one of my options, and I said, okay, I can try these ones, and for three years, any course that I was taking, I was good at it, and I like it, more or less, and I have no idea if that was the correct choice to me, because actually I was not decided on which one I like or what should be my specialty in law. It was like passing by, you know, I was taking courses and everything looked okay, but I didn't feel really, really motivated until I took the course of human rights, Uh, and there I saw something... It clicked. Yeah, I, I really felt like a click. It was like topics that I was really interested in and things that I was seeing now 
I have a language for it, and I think that was one of the things, and I start changing the way I was thinking. All the lawyers, we have this uh, tend, uh, tendency to focus and think like a lawyer in everything that we do. Uh, there it was, it was a different thing. I could put labels to situations that I see on my daily life and, and read the papers, newspapers in a different way. So it's a But I'm actually really surprised to hear you say that you are not, you were not initially uh, envisioned yourself as a lawyer because of the lawyers that I know, you're probably one of the ones that I thought that this was your calling from really early on. No, I, I, I actually, when I was finishing high school, uh, I have three uh, main options uh, that I thought I may be interested in. One was to be a lawyer, another one was to be a psychologist, and yeah, the other one... you also have that uh, psychologist yeah. <laughs> strand. Hey, hey. And the other one was a professor of history. Those were the three things that I was interested in, and, and it was actually a very uh, big decision for and me. I, but I think you've carried on, like, uh, you've developed further your interest in those, and even in your day-to-day... True. Per- But, uh, okay, so you, you, how was life in Buenos Aires? Uh, it, it was interesting. Um, in Buenos Aires, what happens is that it's very common that people who are studying, while you're studying, you work. Uh, yeah, that's uh, the case also in Mexico. Yeah, uh, I see that uh, in other parts of the world that you, you talk and you're just studying. And yeah. for me, as soon as I finished uh, high school, I started working, different jobs. Uh, at the beginning, not related to law, although I was... Uh, following that career, and then I start doing an internship in the Ministry of Defense in Argentina, and there was like, okay. After high school? No, after high school, no, I, when I was in, in my university. At law school, yeah. After law school, uh, and there I, I, it was my first work that was law-related, uh, if you want, um, and actually was not related to human rights at the beginning when I started in the, in the, um, the Ministry of Defense. It was more related to the real estate that the armed forces has in, uh, in Argentina. They are very, they're the biggest uh, landowners in the, in the country. So I was in that direction, the department that administer and check how that was working. Uh, so that was a part of law actually more related to administrative law, yeah. which I like, but uh, it was more because it was an opportunity to do something that was more legal. And then I had the chance to start working with human rights. Uh, I think I that's also usually the case for everyone. Uh, I remember that when I started uh, working as a lawyer, I'm a lawyer as well, <laughs> if you couldn't tell by now, but uh, pretty much you go to where the opportunities are and perhaps this is not really what you're looking for. And when, when you are exploring what's uh, available, you have to go through many things before you actually find your your area, your area where you fit in. But I'm curious, so, You're, you are a lawyer? Is anyone at home uh, a lawyer or no, was um, there any interest? No, in my family, I have one, one aunt who is a lawyer, but all the rest of my family were actually accountants. Accountant. Uh, my dad, my mom, my sister, my uh, grandfather, the brother of my grandfather, everyone w- was an accountant. So actually I finished high school thinking, I started high school thinking I want to be an accountant like my family. <laughs> uh, and then when I was finishing, I actually went to school that was specialized On, on numbers and to basically become an accountant, and I decided that's not what I want to do. Uh, although I went to Olympics, to be uh, accountability Olympics in Buenos Aires, uh, 
during high school. Then I decided, no, this is not what I want. I want something else. Yeah. And I did a big research on the careers. I read the syllabus of all the, the careers I was interested. I took some, some tests to know which one was, I was more close to. I worked a lot to decide where to go. And as I told you, I started it, it was more like uh, inertia. You know? I was just going through the career, not feeling that I could be doing that and I could be doing anything else, and yeah. it would have been the yeah. same. Yeah, yeah, I see. And uh, you you went to the you went to public school throughout. I went to public public school. High school was a private one, and then I went back to public university. So I was yeah. mixed, jumping from one to the other. Buenos Aires University. The you university. Are quite Aires. proud of that. Uh... Completely. <laughs> I, I'm I'm really proud. It's my alma mater. Um, We, we've had this. Uh, discussion before, but yes. we're not going to go into it for our, <laughs> the sake of our listeners. No, but you know, for me, first, there was no option to go into private uh, university. I couldn't how, afford how, it. How is education uh, in Buenos Aires? Is it usually, uh, I'm just uh, comparing to the case in Mexico, uh, there's a public school, yeah. which is really good, and it's also one of the top uh, institutions in Latin America, but In Mexico, there's also really good quality private education. And usually, at least in Mexico, there's like basically two strands. If, if you go to the public school, there's public law school. There's these sort of careers that are reserved for that uh, school. Or you could go to the private where you have these other sets of careers. And there's usually no... You're either on one or on the other. Is that the case also? I, I would say that it's quite similar, but when I started studying my university, I would say like 15 years ago, uh, no, maybe it's that too much, but yeah, around 15 years ago, the, the private universities, they were starting. Some of them were good. Now they have a much better reputation. They have invested a lot. But at that point, first, I couldn't afford to go to a private one even if I wanted to, but there was no choice for me. I, I wanted to go to the University of Buenos Aires. Once I decided I wanted to be a lawyer, I wanted to be there. It's the one that it's the most important one where you have more options. With all the problems that it has, it has thousands of students, it's very complicated bureaucracy, it's, it's uh, really big, but then it has a lot of things uh, that it gives you and, and, and it gives you this, this feeling of being proud uh, as a child of a public uh, free uh, university that, that welcomes everyone, everyone who is Recently, in Argentina can go there. I remember saying on some of your uh, social media thing, you mentioned something about was there something going on in the public university at one point, like recently? There were budgetary cuts. Argentina is going through an economic crisis now, so uh, the government is cutting a lot of funds. Um, and while I was studying, I got involved in, in research, and I got involved also in competitions and in teaching activities. And a lot of those uh, parts are affected now, you know, carrying on uh, competitions, for example, where the university sends a team to represent it abroad uh, in, in public international law or investment law or, or anything um, abroad, it has a lot of, of cost and the university pays for that. Uh, everything is included, you know, you're you are, you are going to a public university, so the public university gives the opportunity to any student, not to those who can afford to travel is, is abroad this, and doing this. Because this is something that I'm also quite surprised about you. I, uh, since as long as I've known you, I've seen that you have like this cohort of Argentinians yeah. who, who are doing things abroad. They are uh, everywhere in the best universities studying either a master's degree, a PhD, 
is this due to this kind of uh, support and encouragement or financial uh, support provided by the university or where do you trace that? Because in my case, I have my close circle of friends who I think most of them went abroad, but I don't think that uh, goes beyond uh, my circle of friends. It's not something that I I see quite often, but in your case, I see that. So how, how can you tell me a bit about why that's the case? Or There is like a running joke in my university that those who go to these kind of competitions were kind of an elite within the university because we are those uh, students who... who who are different and participate in these kind of activities, and then we have a lot of opportunities. But, but uh, definitely, I think that it's because of the opportunities that the, the, the public university gave me. You know, they, they give me access to, to travel abroad, to do an exchange uh, in Canada. I didn't pay for that. You know, I, I went first as a, a participant and then coaching to two different competitions to the U.S. Um, and, and a lot of people that the university currently participates in, in a lot of competitions, in human rights, in IHL, international humanitarian law, in investment law, public international law. And, and that quality of teaching, that, that gives a difference uh, that, that also helps you when you want to, to continue. You know, you want to do something different and you already participated in some of these uh, competitions that are really renowned in the world. And the University of Buenos Aires, especially in the last few years, has had amazing results. He has won a lot of competitions because it's a team, you know, once that you participate in one of these competitions... Yeah, there's like this network. Uh, you stay, you stay and, involved. And, uh, because I've noticed that you are close to them yeah. and there's like a network, uh, there's support from that network that provides you. also provide a lot of support, know-how, you can tell them yeah. how to navigate the waters of, of this. How, how does this come about? Is it something uh, that is nurtured by the university or something that happens organically within the, the network? I think that it depends on the competitions. The ones that I've been involved, uh, we, we say that we are like families. You know, I have like different families there. The preparation of these competitions, is, it's, it's really it's exhausting. Intense. Yeah, it's very intense. So you spend a lot of time with these people. You need a lot of help to prepare. You need people to come to your practices and see how, how you are preparing for a moot court and then participate as a, as a, in a mock like a judge. So these kind of things, it, it creates relationship with people. I participated in some of them actually now via Skype. You know, I want to be involved. I, I read things that they are doing. If they have questions on human rights, they call me to have discussions. So, so you continue and you create uh, new, new relationships, even from people that I, I, don't, I don't know their faces, mm. but, but I, I, know I know who they are. Yeah. I know how they are selected and I see what is happening. We have WhatsApp groups. Uh, with 40 people, 50 people, because I, I think that there is this, this, this feeling where you're so thankful for this opportunity that the university is giving you um, that you want to return, you know, so you, you stay involved. I, I participated actually 10 years ago. It was my first competition, almost 11 now, uh, and, and I stay involved all through all these years in different roles, doing different things, more intense or not, now that I'm abroad, I'm, I'm less present in the daily things, but they know that they can come to me. Uh, and you, I, so I, you often host them at your place even. No? Exactly. <laughs> when, when the team comes to Geneva, for example, yes, and, and, and it's the same. You know, there are participants who are in Washington, for example, and uh, former participants. And when the team travels to Washington, one of the nights, it's, it's like a ritual. You have to go to have dinner to their place, although they, you don't know who they are until you see them there. I think this is quite unique, and honestly, I don't know anyone who has this kind of experience because usually the people who are here are more 
like uh, isolated, uh, I would say, success stories. And uh, even though they, they are probably willing to help and uh, they provide assistance if uh, prompted, I don't see this network that you have benefited from and you have also invested in it. Definitely. I think that's pretty unique. The, the, the former dean was very, uh, Monica Pinto, she was very strong on trying to create this kind of network, you know, meeting the students. Every time that she travels, she tried to meet with former students from these competitions. So she creates also this feeling of, of we are connected in these kind of things. And, and we, this competition has a lot of support from the university. You know, you, you stay days, even nights at the university. The university puts you teachers and you have space, any space that you need in the university, you have it to use. So you really feel the backup of the university to do this, this and, experience. And uh, was this... Because I'm curious, I mean, the way I know you now, you're quite sociable and you are really well-liked by your peers. Was this the case... Uh, also when you were, uh, let's say, in primary school? Or this something like, were you like a late blossomer? Or what, what was the... I'm just trying to understand how yeah, this yeah, evolved. A, it, it's, a, it's an interesting question, and, and, and I think that I'm, I'm, I'm probably a late uh, blossomer. In the university, I think that I found my space, the, the space to, to, I don't know, open more. And I, and, and I, I found friends and colleagues who, who had the same interest, so it was Do, really easy. Do you think that this is due to the fact that when you arrived to university and then you saw like some of these uh, subjects that you really connected with, do you think that that was uh, what brought it out, uh, or was it something else? I, in, in the university, I was, I was very social from the beginning. I, I made a lot of friends from, from, from scratch. As soon as I started, I started making friends every semester. Um, my university is so big that it's not that you, you, you always take the same courses with the same group of people. You, you may, and you may try to coordinate it when you, when you register for courses, but people change a lot all the time. You may take a course in the morning, one in the afternoon, one at night, depending on, on, on your availability. But then you start finding your group and different crews, and I think that these kind of competitions or the teaching activities or the research project, they put together group of people that then, even if at the beginning you didn't know each other that much, then you become really strong friends. Uh, I, have, I have some, some of the people that I coach it, for example, now are one of my greatest friends, or, or the people that I participated in competitions with. They are like my siblings. You know, it's, it's a really strong feeling. You share a lot. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's a very strong uh, feeling. And, and then you met a lot of people around the world. When you, when you go to these activities, the cultural exchange that you, you do, and, and you go and you tell your experience, and you are seeing people everywhere you, who has the same interest. That makes you, and I see that that's one of the, the things that make you grow a lot when you visit other cultures and you see new people. But I'm curious, did you, was this always an ambition or a goal of yours to to leave Argentina? Or? No, not, not, not at all, actually. I, 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 was, I was working there. I, I have a, like a permanent job working on human rights, which, which was really interesting. Ministry? Now, first I was in the Ministry of Defense for five years, and then I moved to the National Defender uh, Office uh, to the program on human rights. Uh, and there we took cases before the Inter-American system. So it was also a part, it was very exciting to be involved on those, on those cases. The Defender, you, you yeah. appeared in court? No, no, I, I, I was not that high. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I was, I was part of, of the team who was preparing uh, the cases and, and, and talk with, the, with, with our, uh, the people that were defending. Um, it was like an extension of the right to defense, you know, that was something very interesting. 
Uh, and then I, uh, I have a friend who convinced me to apply for this LLM that I did in Geneva. That was the reason to came. And actually, I took a leave from my work for well, a you, year. You, you thought you were going back? My plan originally came, and it's like I, I actually uh, lent my apartment to a friend for a year because I was planning to come back. I didn't pack everything and leave the country. But uh, in your mind, everything for you was uh, just a year. For a I year went, and then I, I come yeah. back. I went to study and I came back. Like when I did it in Canada in exchange for a semester, it was the same. I'm, I'm going for a, for a time, I'm studying and I'm coming back. I have a permanent job, I have my friends, I have my family, small nephews. Uh, so it was never the plan to stay in Geneva as it happened. How did, uh, well before that I, I'm just curious, you said that you were a defender. Argentinians have a, I don't know if a tradition, but at least a history of uh, Participating in international courts, uh, yeah. I'm thinking of Ocampo, the yeah. famous prosecutor. I mean, I don't know what are your feelings about him, but uh, at, at least from from my experience, he put a. He was really when when these kind of international courts at one point they were dominated by more by more Anglo-Saxon uh, lawyers. At least in my case, being a lawyer, uh, that was. I don't know much about uh, his politics or the cases that he took, but the fact that he was there mm -hmm. made it seem possible that maybe maybe that's a, a possibility that I, before that, I thought it was not uh, the case. Was that also the case for for you? Or I, I, I got to know, I, I was in a, a, a teaching assistant in a chair that has a lot of people who has to study abroad and have a works that were related to, to cases about the professors from, from my chair. They worked in the ICC before, or, or they were working on before cases uh, arbitration before the CIADI. Um, so they, they were really involved in these kind of things. And I knew a lot of professors who were involved in, in international tribunals, uh, the criminal courts, or, or, or another one. So I knew more than just Monino Campo. So, so for you, it was not like uh, something? But, but it was something, when I get to know these people that were actually I was teaching with, you know, they were professors, and then, ah, but they are traveling and going and doing this, and then they stay, I don't know, a time in the ICC. It's like, okay, maybe I can go to the ICC. Yeah. That was an inspiration, but maybe closer to me, not Moreno Campo, but people who, who were younger and closer to me, and I felt, okay, they are studying abroad, they're going to study abroad, and then they're working abroad, uh, so they can do it, and maybe I can do it. Uh, so, so I sense that perhaps you don't agree with many of the politics of Ocampo. No, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> Okay. I, I don't. I, I don't judge him. He's not my favorite one. Let's say yeah. that that way. Well, I, I think that that's something, and that's something that's kind of the goal of this uh, podcast to see what some because some when someone achieves something and you see it, uh, okay, so maybe that's possible. Uh, that person is within my reality. I can understand that uh, how this transition happened. That I think is really powerful and it provides a lot, it, it opens a lot of opportunities just uh, knowing that someone has done it before you. Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, for the longest time that was not uh, really possible, at least in many of these uh, countries in Latin America, I would say, and Africa and other continents. But for example, now that we're here in, in Geneva, we see so many people from everywhere. And that, I think that Well, that person probably inspired someone, and they know, like you know, my cousin went to to this, and it's it's a, a door that's open. Definitely. And I, I think that there's a lot of value to that because international organizations right now, 
need this kind of diversity that uh, it's not everywhere. No, I agree with you. In, in Argentina, it's, it's very difficult that you can go to study abroad without a scholarship. You know, I was very lucky because I applied and I got a full scholarship to come. Otherwise, probably I couldn't even come. Although I was working and I have been working for years, I couldn't afford to do a, a master abroad. It was not an option for me. Uh, I needed... And for many, I think. It's, uh, yeah, and so, that was also my case. So knowing that there were, there were, there were some, some venues where you can apply for a scholarship, that, that gives you a lot of, of opportunities. I think that of all these people that you see around me and you talk about, these friends who are studying abroad and then they're working in your organizations, I would say that 80% of, of them... In the same situation. Yeah, we got, we got scholarships. Even if your family has some different, maybe they can help you even more. Um, we, we did it with scholarship. It's very hard coming from, from the South uh, to come to study to Europe or to the US uh, and be able to afford it. Yes, yes, it's true. So when you, when you came to Geneva to study, you had the intention of going back. What, what changed? What happened? It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know when I did that click in, in Geneva. You know, I applied for, for uh, an internship. During, as part of my studies, I could took more courses or I could do an inter internship, a professionalizing activity. Yes. Uh, and I was not planning to do it because I have work experience. So I said to myself, I'm not going to waste time doing an internship. I'm a legal advisor in Argentina. I don't need this kind of experience. And then I saw the ILC, the International Law Commission, as one of the options. And I'm really interested in international law. So I said, OK, I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm going to apply because I'm interested in this one. My, my, my classmates, they were desperate to get internships because for some of them, you know, they were, I don't know, 22, they were just finishing studies. So it was like the first working experience that they could have. For me, I was really selective and I said, uh, I want to do one that I'm really interested in. And I, I did the ILC and, and I worked with an Argentinian ambassador, Candioti, Ambassador Candioti, and Professor Concepcion Escavares Hernandez from Spain. I worked with two members of the ILC and it was an amazing experience. So I saw, okay, Working in these topics, it's different than working it from Argentina. It was like a click. Maybe there is something to try here, and, and there is more. Although it was an internship, uh, professionalizing activity within my master, and it was not very long, it was so intense and it was so gratifying. The, the research, writing part of the, of the reports, uh, the exchange, participating in debates with members of the ILC, uh, it was an amazing experience. So then I said, okay, maybe I should try to see uh, something else. Uh, and that's what I did when I was finishing. I applied for, for uh, being a legal intern as well in the International Federation of the Red Cross on disaster law. That is something that I knew a bit from Argentina from part of my work on the Ministry of Defense. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to see. You know, it was more like a chance if they accept me. Otherwise, I go back to Argentina. And actually, so, they, so they, they did. How many of your colleagues who were doing the program managed to... What Was their intention staying or...? A lot of them try to stay. And how um, many did? I, I don't know exactly the number, but from those that I know, a lot of them have come back. Even if they didn't stay immediately they after, went they, they went back to do something else and they keep applying until they found something. Uh, or they came back to do a PhD. And then with that, they came back and they're doing that or they're teaching or participating in research. The ICRC but, was, but, a, was, was a, a big uh, employer of people from my master. <laughs> um, they, they, have, they seem to have a connection, but... Uh, Like if you were to put a rough number, how, like in terms of percentage, how many? I think that my class was quite successful, or at least start staying at, at the end of the master. A couple of them stay. I, I would say that around half of my class managed. Oh, really? Yeah, I think that half of my class more or less managed to stay or come back soon. 
you know, not like four years after. Because I, I, in my experience, that has not been the case. I, I mean, we're here in Geneva and uh, there's so many programs everywhere in the world. And usually what I hear is, even in my case, uh, students go, they want to, they want to use that uh, program as an opportunity to find a job somewhere else. Yeah. And most of them don't succeed. I, I don't know what's the secret recipe for that. And sometimes I feel that when someone tells a story, it's a, a door that's open and then it's automatically closed behind yeah. this person. So there's no really, there's no really magic uh, recipe to do this. But uh, what do you think someone, because I get this question asked a lot, uh, how can I, of young students who want to come to Geneva or anywhere, how, how, can, how can they do it? And if they do it, what are the chances of them securing a job? I, I got that question a lot as well, um, especially when they realize that I've been living here for five years nonstop. Uh, I think that I'm probably one of the few and really, really few from my master that never left Geneva since we finished the master. A lot of them came back and then left for missions or going back to their countries and coming back for another job. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting. I think that in a part, it's, it's luck. Uh, you, you need to yeah, have luck at a point. A there, there is a, something a that you cannot control. But then it's trying to take opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm saying if you have an opportunity, you know, for me, when I told my dad that I was staying to do an internship, he wanted to kill me. You know, like you're a legal <laughs> advisor, you're a lawyer, you have a permanent job, a good salary, and you want to stay to be an intern. And he couldn't understand that was an investment. It was part. It was something, because all my experience in Argentina here is not as relevant because it's not experience at an international organization or at the international level. So I, I, I felt that I needed to do something, um, which is, it's, I had the chance to, to do it in the IFRC and they pay me so I could stay. If they didn't pay me anything, I couldn't stay. Yeah. That, that's part of the unfairness in Geneva. Uh, interns don't get paid. Um, so it's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Exactly, and it's uh, not student-friendly. Um, yeah. There is initiative, an initiative now. Some NGOs actually have made a pledge to pay at least something to their interns, yeah. but the UN is not paying to their interns. There was interns. Like this uh, story in the news a couple of uh, years ago when our intern was living in a, in a tent by yeah, the Yeah, I, I know him. <laughs> really? I know him personally, yeah. He's a really cool guy. Uh, is he still here? He's still here working, okay. yeah. Uh, but it's true, but I mean... Uh, well, that, that story like really called attention to this definitely. problem. Uh, and, well, I'm glad. I, I've heard that it's getting better, but I think there's still a, a, some way to, to go. Yeah, so, so that's a problem. If you're coming from, from Latin America and, and your family cannot help you, it's very difficult to start. So then any then chance that you have... the diversity problem that we have definitely. here in Geneva, because that means that only those who probably from developed countries who yep. have means, uh, if not, it's pretty much close to. I agree the completely, rest of the world. and and that that's that's something that I've seen as an intern. Uh, when when I started, when this initiative, the fair initiative, started, or pay your interns, uh, and and I, I know that there were some diplomats from certain uh, European countries who told the interns when they were meeting, we are not going to support your initiative because that will mean that we will have less nationals from our country uh, in those positions because it will be more fair for others to come from the rest of the world. Like these, as we are close, uh, they can afford to live in Geneva, so there are a lot of that nationality there. I'm not going to name, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but it, was, uh, it, it was amazing when I heard that. It was like you're supporting unfairness so you can have more people from your country and less of a, instead of achieving to have 
a more diverse uh, UN. Uh, and yeah. that, that, was, that was something uh, that uh, struck me. When, when I heard that, it's like, I cannot believe that if he think about that, he said it. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's a reality. It's a reality, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, like you said, when you hear about this kind of stories, it's not, it's not, uh, it shows you how much progress we have left. Yeah. Do. But uh, so, so the, what's this job at the IFRC, IFRC before yeah. the, uh, was this a, the job that was just before your current role? Or? Yeah, exactly. I, I, was, I was doing that and then they offered me to go for a couple of months to Panama uh, because we were here in the global coordination of the disaster law program and they offered me go to the field uh, that was uh, in Panama. Uh, but it was a very short one. So there I, I was faced against with a, choi with a choice. Uh, if I go to Panama, I'm leaving Geneva and I'm not coming back. I don't have resources to come back to Geneva if I'm, if I'm leaving it. Uh, and then I have to go back to Argentina. I have my job waiting for me there. By that, point, by that point, you were already with the mentality of I want to stay here? Yeah. Yeah, at that point I said I, I, I still want to, to try to stay abroad a bit more. Uh, at this point of my life, I have no ties. I, I mean, I have my family there and my friends and my, my but nephews. It seemed, but it seems that you were quite happy in Argentina. I was, I was. I have a good life. My quality of life here is it's much better. I'm doing <laughs> a quarter of the things that I used to do. Um, and my day is shorter. I have more free time. Yes. Uh, so that, that's something that it's really, really nice. But the experience and the environment and meeting people, it's, it's, a, it's a different rhythm. It's something that it's exciting, at you, least you now. You think that if you were to go back, you, well, I'm not talking about the quality of life, but some of the work that you do, you just wouldn't have the possibility? Yeah, I think that it's, it's maybe you can find uh, interesting things to do in Argentina. I think that there are a lot of things and opportunities. Now it's a tricky time in Argentina. As I told you, the, the, there is a economic crisis and there is a government that is not very supportive of human rights and actually has destroyed a lot of programs uh, related to the things that actually I used to work with. So I don't see myself going back to Argentina now uh, under this government because it's not an environment where, where I could work or where people who work with the things that I do are respected. You know, Society may respect them, NGOs have a very uh, strong struggle to try to get funds and keep working uh, and the policies of the government are terrible. I may go there and fight, you know, and I could be a militant. It's like, this is the time to go there and try to fight this. Uh, but to develop a career, I don't, I don't see that now is the time and the environment in Argentina to do that. Yeah. So, okay, so going back, you mentioned that you had this opportunity to go to Panama. Yeah. Uh, you ultimately decided not to? No, um, I, was, I was already in the process, uh, in the selection process for my current work at the Mission of Israel. Uh, to be a human rights advisor, so it was very interesting and challenging. It was a very long process. It took like three and a half months until they decided. Um, so then I was finishing my, 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 my time at the IFRC, and then I had 15 days off. Uh, and, and my boss at that time told me, okay, you have to tell me if you're going to Panama, because otherwise we have to open a recruitment process to find someone to go there. Uh, so I sent an email. Uh, to who was later my boss at the mission, and I said, okay, I need to know because I have another offer. Uh, and then he said, give me time until Monday. And then Monday evening, he wrote to me, congratulations, you have been selected. Can you start on Wednesday? <laughs> so actually, my plans for holidays between, after the, the IFRC didn't happen, and I started working immediately without a, a break, actually. Yeah, I actually remember that. Yeah, and, and then I met you. <laughs> 
And that was what, five years ago? No, three years really? and a half, almost it, four. It, 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 looking back, it looks like five or maybe even not. April 2015. Yeah, maybe you're right. I'm not good with, <laughs> with time. But uh, so what is your, what does your day-to-day -day look like right now? Has it changed? Has it evolved since you started until now? Uh, it, it, it changed. I think that it, that it changed also for, for me. You know, when I started in the mission, the people who, who were my, my bosses then, they knew it very well. They knew the work a lot. They have been here for many years. They were actually closer to the end of their mission, the diplomats. And before in Israel, they were also working with this topic. So there was not that I came to, to tell taught them anything because they knew uh, what they, their job was or they knew what they want to put their focus on. And some of these uh, topics, you your experience was mainly academic with a bit of the work that you did back in Argentina and maybe in the IFRC? Or how, how did you learn these topics? I, I think that it was a good combination. I, I'm the Human Rights and Humanitarian Affairs Advisor. So I do human rights, but I also do, do migration or disaster risk reduction. And, and I think that all the experience that I have actually match very well the description of the job because I work, I have academic knowledge. Uh, I, I used to teach human rights and, and public international do. law, and I still struggle to try to do something <laughs> of that. Uh, so I have that knowledge. I did my LLM in, in IHL and human rights, so actually my postgraduate studies also were focused on the topics that we were discussing, refugee law, IHL, human rights. Uh, so I, I, I have that experience, but also my work in the Ministry of Defense and then in the National Defender Office were also in line to know about human rights and, and systems, uh, the human rights systems. And then with the Federation, I got even more knowledge about the humanitarian side of the work. I uh, so I think that I have uh, different things. And, and for me, the interesting thing, uh, a funny example, I, I wanted to know, you know, when I decided to stay, I, I, I wanted to have the full picture. You know, before I used to work for the government at the national level, back home, you know, not, not abroad. And some topics that I work there, then I see them how it was discussed here, or the resolutions that I used to teach in the university, then I start participating in the negotiations. And there was one topic in particular um, that was uh, protection of people in, in, in case of disasters. Uh, that is something that I work in Argentina in the Ministry of Defense. Uh, we were trying to, to prepare a protocol for the attention of people with disabilities in the event of disasters. Then that was a main topic in the year that I work at the ILC as an intern. So that's something that I saw from the, the, the side of the ILC when they were preparing the draft articles uh, that now that they, they were noted by the... So you saw it from, uh, from both sides. And then when I moved to the Federation, the Federation was that area where I was working, were preparing their response to those articles, to the draft articles. So then I, I work on that. And then That's when I start working in the experience. mission, yeah, and when I work in the mission, that was the second time, it was the second reading of the article, so I went on behalf of the mission to see how it was adopted by the commission. So I saw different things. So, you know, like having the full picture on these kind of things. Um, or with International Conference of the Red Cross, it was the same. When I was in the Ministry of Defense, we prepared the pledges that were discussed in Geneva in 2011. And then when I came here and I started in the mission, I was part of the, of the discussion. I was part of the delegation before that conference. So it was interesting to see it from the other side. Uh, so I have this kind of experience when, when I know the kitchen now, you know, and, and that's very interesting. It's, it's fascinating to to see, you know, when you're studying back home, far away in Argentina, yes. everything looks like amazing. Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that was uh, the case when I, because I think that's also 
similar in Argentina and Mexico, maybe like across Latin America and other continents. Uh, we have some, we kind of have like some, we revere the international institutions, yeah. which is, I don't think is the case in other countries. For example, when I was studying in the US, I, I didn't, I was studying this and I didn't, I didn't see this sense of reverence to the institutions. Yeah. And I think it's across, across the world. And it, it has changed. Uh, in current times, it seems that we have more of a, a return to a bit more nationalistic uh, yeah. things. And I think that this is affecting the way that international organizations operate uh, across everything. How have you seen this in your day-to-day -day work? Well, you, you can see you can see that the, the how much states are committed or how much NGOs have to struggle with certain topics. You know, there. When I was back home and I was teaching it, it's this: we were, we were, it was a complete idealization of the international organizations. It was like this is a resolution of the Human Rights Council. Oh, the language is amazing. Why do you think that is? I, I I've always tried to put my finger on it, but I I just don't know what it is. But it just has this kind of. Aura. I don't know yeah. how, how to put it that. It sounds like it's international, like we should... And you look it from far away. And I think that if, if you think in Latin America, especially, I don't know, from Argentina, some of the activities that, that international organizations have done have been crucial uh, for the defense of, of human rights. When we have the dictatorship in Argentina, the coup d'etat a couple of years ago, the visit by the Inter-American Commission saved a lot of life. Although so they, so you, you think it's due to that? that you have in Argentina, the, the with the Inter-American Commission, I, I think that there is a reverence because... There, you could see, you could see the, the effect that they have. By, by coming, a lot of people will save. You know, by people being registered as, 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 as disappear or something happening to those people, those people actually leave. And, and they are not one of the 30,000 that disappear. Yeah. So, so I think that, at least from Argentina, I don't know in Mexico, but maybe something like that, you, when you see all the progress that the inter-American system helped you to do a lot of times, uh, then, then you you think, oh, this is amazing. I mean, I, I see what you're saying about the actual effects and the directly that you saw. Uh, I don't, I don't think that that was the case in Mexico, but we still have the same. Uh, no, and then, and then there is this thing of, 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 you know, it's it's far away. It's like an ivory tower. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it, it looks like amazing and far away. And how how can you reach? But that is not that. the case for some of the uh, developed countries. No, maybe European, and I guess that for Europe because they saw it, like they saw, they were at the center of some of these incidents, like the Second World War, and yeah. this caused the creation of the uh, UN, the UN, yeah. and uh, WTO, GATT, and all of yeah. this, and maybe they saw the effect, and that's why there's a bit of reverence also there, but it's not across the board, no. and as I said, now it's receding, yeah, and, and it's making it more difficult for us to. First, financially, there's less contribution. True. It makes the resources are more scarce. And more than that, I think that there's more difficulty in building consensus. Definitely. Now, now and, and, and it's funny, that's what I, I, I was trying to say before. Being behind in the kitchen, you can see that. You know, you, before it was, this is a resolution of the Human Rights Council, it's amazing. And now, maybe part of that language, it's a suggestion that I made. And, and, and that's interesting to see what I was thinking when I proposed it. Now I know. Uh, or, or you see how a text that maybe you, I don't know, if it's welcome or welcomes with appreciation, maybe you give a value before. And now you know that it's just a discussion between two blocks 
that are just trying to, to screw each other and fight and, and, and just molest. You know, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it was, it's interesting because now I, I put down the organization from, from this ivory tower. I, I, know, I know that it's closer now and it has a lot of problems. But do you still have the same respect? I, 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 have, I have a lot of respect because I, I see also how people work and, and a lot of people work. I, I have identified probably the bureaucracy, it's a thing and it's very slow and how states sometimes tied organization tied up and, and they cannot do more because the states don't want to. Yeah. And, I, and I have seen how states block things. Uh, but otherwise, it's the organization who doesn't take the initiative to propose to states because once that they say, hey, we can do this, the states say, like, please, go ahead. Uh, but this thing that you're saying about nationalism, I can, see, I can see more clearly. I don't know if it's because I've been here longer and now I can understand what is happening in a room during a negotiation and at the beginning, no. Yeah. But now I, yeah, can, that, see, I, can, that, I can see these, these blocks. That's experience, but I think that in the past few years it has increased. Yeah, yeah you, you can see blocks, fighting yeah. blocks in a room and, and, and even sitting, you know. Sometimes now I see, you know, there is an, uh, an axis sitting. You have four countries who are sitting and, and yeah. they are plotting how to block a full initiative that is supported by 100 states. But these four countries, they don't want it to move and they're yeah. going to succeed. And how, how do you see this in the coming years? Do you think uh, this is going to get worse? This is going to get better? What does it... What is necessary to happen for it to get better? I think that uh, in the short time, probably it's going to get worse because there are more and more governments who are opposing to this multilateralism. But I think that other governments actually are trying to, to step up and try to, to work harder to show uh, the progress that it can be made. I think that the only change that can happen is, is reform. I think that the international system needs some kind of reform. Uh, the problem is if you open a Pandora box. You know, if at this time when you have this struggle, you open for reform, then maybe these countries who are against multilateralism will take the chance and try to destroy the whole system. Yeah. Uh, so it's risky. So at a point, it's, do you want to keep the status quo so you can keep at least a bit of the good that it's doing, or you want to try and do more, putting in risk what you already have? Yeah. Uh, and that's a, that's a problem. Yeah, it's true, and uh, we see it uh, across all the organizations here in, in Geneva. Yeah, and I guess each of them has their own dynamics, but it's basically the same, uh, the same problem. Um, I just want to hear a bit more about you're doing your regular day-to-day -day work, which you are really good at it, and Thank you. you have a bit of a following, uh, like some fans, I would even say, <laughs> which I witnessed myself. Uh, So you do that, but you also do many of other things. Yeah. How do you balance your day-to-day -day work and all of these other interests that you want to support? It, it, it is a problem because, uh, for example, I, I, the and thing that what I... What are these? Uh, what, what are, if you can say something about them? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm really involved, still attached to my university, back home to the University of Buenos Aires. I still, I'm engaged with uh, competitions and following some of the things that they do, uh, and research projects and writing with, uh, with friends uh, on certain topics that we're interested in. You know, we, we may having a beer here now in Geneva and then uh, an idea for an article come up and we, then we, we want to write pen, it. We also have a pending like joint work that we Exactly. Have so, so, you know, sometimes it's, it's people will be talking about Netflix and we may have a discussion about non-state armed groups and the international responsibility and the rules of attribution. And then I sit with friends uh, during weekends and we write an article. But what is the... What, what do you think is the difference? Because I know many people who 
probably have these discussions at some point or, or regarding anything, but they just don't follow through. Yeah. What what do you think is the reason why you actually have fallen through in some of these? I think that we have a lot of passion and I have some friends who are a bit of uh, hyperactive. You know, I'm not the one who usually takes the initiative for doing these kind of things. I can, I can start a discussion with you and we can discuss for hours, but then when you say we have... I w I'm not going to say we have to write an article. If you say let's write an article, I'm going to say yes, I have a problem. I have a, a, a very hard no. Uh, it's not that I have an easy yes, I have a, it's hard for me to say no. Uh, so sometimes I, I get involved in too many things at the same time and then it's complicated. That has been part of my process the last year to try to reduce the things that I can do so I can do them really well um, and not just try to spread myself uh, all too thin and then it's very hard to, to manage everything. Yeah. Uh, but then when, when I have someone who is, who is uh, with Taking me and want to do something, yeah. I will get involved and we will try to work together. Well, like uh, Whenever I've asked you for help or to participate, even this podcast, yeah. I asked you and you immediately jumped at the opportunity, yeah. which I am really grateful. Uh, so you do these things, you write, you participate in uh, events of your university, yeah. uh, competitions. Yeah, uh, I'm judging competitions, I'm, I'm, I'm writing memorials from competitions, I'm traveling to judge oral rounds from competitions. On your, on your own dime? Yeah, uh, it's my free time. Uh, some things with the support of, of, of the mission, I must, I must say. Okay. Um, but then there are things on my university, you know, I'm not, I'm not probably into the detail of what they're doing and what they're writing, but they know that they can count on me for advice or a strategy or big things that they're thinking or problems that the coach may have because I know them. Uh, either I coach them or I coach their coach, so there is like this idea of I'm the grandfather yeah. for a lot of them. So if they have a problem, they come and they send me a WhatsApp and, and we can discuss things that they may be going through uh, sometimes. It's not that I'm advising directly the team, maybe, uh, but... Uh, You're involved. But I'm involved and, and I'm part of this family and I, and I, and I really like that. And, and I discovered a lot of young, amazing people. Now I feel old on this regard. I remember at a point when I was younger. Uh, I get that also all the time. And now I see them and, and then you see them that they're bright when they're so young yeah, and so... Amazing. And so, yeah, and so motivated. Like, like actually, I, I, as part of the thing that I like to do is to interview these students who are going to university. And after I do that, I feel so energized. Definitely. And because it gets to a point where you get a bit uh, into the routine and maybe you get a bit uh, disillusioned about yeah. the future. But then I talk to these uh, Uh, boys and girls who are going to university, so full of energy, so talented, and uh, I, I get energized, and I also think, well, maybe the world is not, uh, it's going, we have a potential to become better. I, I agree, and, 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 and you see that, you know, it's, 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 you see them motivated and with the right ideas from the beginning, you know, I, uh, I went personally through a lot of, of, of uh, of changes and challenging myself and, and, and you know you talk about feminism and I believe that I'm a feminist uh, but uh, I remember at a time when I was one of those who say no I'm not a feminist I'm an equalist I want equality for men and, and, and Can women. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yeah it, it was it, I mean I said it that because I didn't know you know I, I, I thought no I want equality I don't want one over the others and then I met these kind of people that I actually met them a lot of them through the competitions 
who were feminists and it was just a talk, you know, and then they inspire you to read a bit more and you start reading and you realize that basically that's what feminism want. If, if you want equality, then, then you are a feminist because you realize which are the privileges, are the problems that women have, but machism doesn't only mean problem for women, it means problem for men. Men are not free. We are expected to do a lot of things. We are expected not to cry. We are expected to be the one who provides for home. We are expected, I don't know, to be strong. And, and all that force you to live in a way that actually if we are more equal, you will be more free. If, if you are having a baby, why you have two days of leave and you cannot stay with your baby? Why is it work for the woman? Uh, you know, why you cannot enjoy that. And, and I see that on my daily life. I, I have conversations with people and, and I remember one woman who told me, no, it's my job to walk up in the, in the night to take care of the baby because he's working. And she was also working with me. So, you know, why, why you, you also yeah. do a work. So, so realizing this kind of thing. So it was evolution to, to realize actually that feminism is it's, it's aiming to try to be more equal and more free. We're, and this... And this uh realization came through through you by this uh, like younger generation who Definitely. was like challenging your yeah your I, 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 was, I, I was never a, a machist I, I was not there I, I, I was but I was a healthy son of the patriarchy you know as we say in, in Argentina un hijo sano del patriarcado but not not those who, who are machist and are gonna harass women in the streets I, I was not in that that level but I was not in a level where I was committed. I, yeah. I didn't believe that I have something to do. You know, at the beginning it was, it was something for women. And then I realized, no, we all have to do something because this is a benefit for the whole society. Yeah. And actually, I think that you have followed through with that, uh, that uh, commitment. And I, I can say that. In my case, you've taught me a lot about this. And I'm grateful. And I think that you've actually made a, a difference. Uh, Thank you. Maybe in the small circle or maybe even in the little bubble that we live yeah. in Geneva, but, but you have. And I have a question about this because in the past maybe year and a half there has been like this movement uh, that started I think in the US, uh, mainly with the incident with Harvey Weinstein and then uh, I think that that was not uh, that was one of the instances that really crystallized this, but it was many threats that happened to have a, just happened to be at the right time. And, mm -hmm. But I think that this moment changed things. And then there was this movement, the Me Too movement uh, and yeah. all of this. And all of this is happening. But here in Geneva, I don't see anything, anything happening. I mean, I cannot imagine that we are immune to this uh, this kind of abuses and whatever is some of the concerns of this movement. But here in Geneva, I haven't really heard anything and in the international community, not at all. I don't know if this is because it hasn't happened or just the instances when it happens, it's not uh, public. Do you, what, what are your thoughts on this? No, I, I, I think that you haven't seen it, but it is. Um, we actually organized an event in the Graduate Institute to, to discuss sexual harassment in the workplace, and it was a really good event, and the, the community in yeah, the Graduate I, I, Institute... I attended that event, but still, I mean, all of these events are happening, but there hasn't been like this sort of reckoning that 
has happened in... No, but after, after that, uh, in the Graduate Institute, actually, they, there was a movement also to denounce a certain... Uh, abuses from certain professors, you know. Really? The, yeah. I was not familiar with that. Yeah, and, and then, you know, when, when there is this march, uh, the Women's March, every year on the 8th of March, uh, I actually, this year, that was another time where I challenged myself, you know, I want to go and I want to support them, I want to march with them. And then, depending on the place, it, it takes place all around the world. Here in Geneva, they ask not to have uh, cis heterosexual men walking with them. Uh, the women didn't want to. And, and I felt bad at that point. And I had to challenge myself at that point. It's like, I want to show support. I want to be there. But at that point, I realized it's not about me. You know, this, this is for them. And if they want to feel safe, what they were saying is we want to feel safe to walk free in this time. So that we don't want to have a case of anything happening. That's why we want women or trans women walking with us. Um, and I said, I'm going to respect it because this is not about me. It's about them. And that's my support. You know, that we can show support. If your wife wants to join, then you take care of the children. You know, if a co-worker needs to go, then you take the task that she needs to do so she can go and walk. And you are supporting the movement by staying behind. You know, and that's part of challenging what we're used to. We're men, uh, cisgender men, we're, we're, we're uh, used to be in the lead. And, and I think that this feminist woman is showing us that they can do it and they, they have a right to do it and our support is to let them do it. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm really impressed with that in Argentina. You know, it's now what is happening in Argentina. A couple of years ago, we started with the ni una menos, not even one less, uh, because of uh, murdering of women, femicides. Yeah. Uh, and it started a big movement. And now we have meetings of women every year. And now we have a denounce against an actor by an actress that was allegedly raped when she was 16 years old. Uh, in Nicaragua, and it was announced by a collective of 400 actresses who denounced it together. You know, it's similar to this, uh, what you say, the Me Too in Hollywood. But, but in, this in is what I'm saying. Uh, in, well, in the U.S., it's yeah. almost everywhere. You see it in the uh, entertainment industry. You yeah. see it like, even in corporate America. It's cracking, and it. you can see but, people but reacting to that. That's exactly what I, I don't see. That's up, where you mentioned that's happening in Argentina. Yeah. And... That's what I don't see happening here. But you know, here in Geneva, started the, the actually it started like the Geneva Gender Champions. It was an initiative that was motivated actually by the the, the UN, you know, uh, Canada at that point. No, the US, uh, the, the former ambassador for the US and an NGO. They started this Geneva Gender Champions. And then it became the International Gender Champions because it extended from Geneva to New York, Vienna, and other, uh, other hubs in the world. And the first pledge that they are making, anyone who wants to be a gender champion, it's not to participate in a panel that has no equal participation of men and women. And I've seen how ambassadors reject participation on panels because they don't see enough number. You know, it's a very small thing, but it's very clear. And then each champion has to make a pledge. And the champions are the head of the organizations, missions, international organizations, NGOs, agencies. And they have to do a pledge of doing something to change it within the organization. And some of them have, have done really good things. Others, they just lie that they have committed a comply with their pledge. But it's a small thing, and it has grown so fast. And they have now groups to think on progress on things. And all, uh, I don't know, the UN now was, was uh, full of a campaign of, against sexual harassment and denounced and mechanisms to say it. Um, the president of the, of the Human Rights Council, every session uh, during the last year, he was saying... There is a zero tolerance policy uh, because there were complaints about diplomats with NGOs or interns, you know, abusing or harassing or, or, or colleagues 
So it's it like, does exist. Uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, it was there. I was like, please, if you have something, just come and tell us. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's small and it's very difficult. And I think that maybe one of the things, the features of Geneva is that people change so much so fast that it's very hard sometimes to have a movement that can be established because maybe oh, in two years you don't have the same people. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's hard, but it's happening for sure. And a lot of organizations now are trying to develop. You know, I follow the governing bodies of a lot of organizations. And, and in the last year, at least three of them announced policies regarding sexual harassment uh, and exploitation and abuse. And before, it was not even a topic that they were talking about. And now they have departments, they have inspectors, they have policies. You know, even if it still doesn't make a change, they're starting to talk about that. So there is a movement that is actually happening, and, and I'm, I'm really happy that it's happening, and I'm really well, proud of I that. I think that you are also being an active part of it, and uh, please continue doing that. I will. <laughs> Well, Brian, uh, what's next for you? What, do you have any plans? Or how do you see the next five years? Uh, that's uh, for an interview, uh, work <laughs> interview. How do you, where do you see yourself in five years? No, 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 but I, I'm just curious because I, I think that uh, you mentioned that, for example, when you came to, to Geneva for the first time, that was not your intention, and then when you were here, something changed. Yeah. But is something like that happening right now with you? Have you had any... No, I think that the, the, one of the things is that I really miss teaching, like, like directly being in front of a class. That's something that I really miss, and it's something that I'm considering that I'm lacking. You know, I'm, 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 I'm content with a lot of aspects of my life, but teaching is something that I'm missing. Uh, I've done something, uh, but I want to do more, and I think that one of the ways to try to do that is to have a PhD, so I'm considering starting uh, a PhD uh, anytime soon, or whatever I manage to put together. A proper application. <laughs> uh, so probably, you know, I, I have something. When I'm doing only academic things, I miss working. When I'm yeah. working, I miss academia. Yeah. I still couldn't find a balance of the two things. Uh, and that's why I, I, I'm still involved with competitions and I'm still writing while I'm working. But the year that I was in the academy and I was a full-time student, the first time in my life since high school that I was a full-time student without working, then I started doing internships, you know, yeah. because I was missing, like... A working part, so I don't know. I'm still trying to try to find uh, this balance. Well, uh, I hope uh, I, I know that anything that you decide is gonna probably be good. And I want to thank you for being the first guest in my podcast. And maybe you can come again sometime later. Anytime you want. It was a really good experience. Thank you for having me. Thank Brian. You you feel good? I feel good. It was really <laughs> thank good. Thank you. Nice thank you. you. Bye bye. <laughs>